Okay, um, we didn't know if everyone would be able to make it since it's NFL playoffs, but fortunately it's just the Jets, so you're all here. <laughs> That's right, so you're okay now. Um, welcome to Seven Mile Road Church. My name is Ajay. I'm a pastor here at this brand new church plant. Uh, if you're a visitor here today, we just want to welcome you. Uh, most of our visitors are usually one of two. Either you're a Christian who knows Jesus and you're new to the area or looking for a church, and if so, welcome. Uh, take in the service, and if you have any questions about uh, this church, about church planting, Seven Mile Road, please do catch up with me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about it. Uh, for others of you, maybe you're not used to church or have a background in Christianity, um, but you're here, and we really want to welcome you and let you know that you're welcome here. This is a place that's safe for you to ask questions, to wrestle with what you believe, to figure it out. Um, you're allowed to belong in this community even as you figure out what it is that you believe. Uh, part of why we named the church Seven Mile Road is because we love the idea of people being able to ask honest questions, deal with their skepticisms, and yet walk with a community that's walking with Jesus. So that's our great hope for you. Also, take in the service. If you have any questions, do catch up with us afterwards. Uh, last week, we started a new preaching series. We called it Seven Mile Road. Uh, and as you noticed, uh, that's the name of the church. And we said the reason is, as we start this new year, we want to start by sort of hashing out what are our values, what's going to be our DNA, what's centrally important to this new community that God is building here. What are the things that's going to shape us as we go into this new year and into the years beyond? And so we wanted to cast a vision for what was going to mark our community, what was going to mark our church, what our hopes for what we're going to be about and what we're going to become are. And for all of that, we said all of that is tied up in the name and the story of the Seven Mile Road. It's the story found in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. It's on page 885 of the Black Bibles. You can leave the Bibles open to there. We're going to keep coming back there. Uh, and so over these seven weeks, what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of walk one mile at a time and look at these different details of the story and through these details begin to cast a vision for what's going to be important among us, what's going to mark us, what's going to shape us. Last week, if you were here, we walked mile one. We walked mile one and we said one of the details that immediately pops out as you read these 13 verses or so is that everything that happens in the story, everything that happens in the narrative happens on a road over the course of a journey. And we said that journey, the idea of going somewhere, heading in a direction, is a huge metaphor throughout the scriptures. That all of Christian life could be described like a journey, like a walk, like a road that's traveled. We said none of us have arrived, but what would it look like for all of us to walk together? People at different stages in the walk, but nonetheless walking this road, walking this journey together. Today, we're in mile two. We're looking at a different detail in the story. And today, we're going to consider the idea of being in need. The condition of these two folks as they walk the road. And we're looking mile two at what it looks like to be people who are in need. What does it mean to be people who walk this road but do so with great need? All right, so I'm going to pray and just ask God to bless our time as we do this together. And then we'll get ready to walk mile two. Let's pray. 
Father, we give you great thanks for this time. I thank you for these brothers and sisters, these men and women who have gathered here. We thank you for bringing us together around your word again. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be seen through the proclamation of the word, through the preaching, the teaching of the scriptures, that Jesus would be known. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with these puffs of air that flow from my mouth. It's just air, but if you get involved, you could fill them with power so that they don't just fall to the ground, but rather penetrate our ears and pierce our hearts and bring about repentance and faith in Christ. We pray that you would draw us to him, to Jesus in this time, that you would make much of him in this time, and that you would show us from your word what it is you want to speak to us in our lives. I pray for today, especially, that you would show us the impossibility of our condition so that we might appreciate again what it is that Jesus has done for us and what Jesus longs to do in and through each of us. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you look at Luke 24, uh, you've got sort of three characters in verses 13 to 36 that are in the spotlight in the story. And the main character, the spotlight, the focus is on Jesus. In fact, it's not just 13 to 35. It's all of chapter 24. Jesus is in central view. He's the <clears throat> main character on stage. He's in center stage. And everything sort of revolves around him. Next week, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to look at what it would look like for a church and a community to be centered on the person and work of Jesus. But in verses 13 to 35, you have this supporting cast who fills out the story. These two other actors that come into the limelight. It's these two disciples that walk the seven-mile road with Jesus. Now, to be honest, we don't know much about these disciples. We're not told much. What we know about them is partial at best. For example, we're not told both their names. We know that one of them is named Cleopas. The other, we have no idea. We don't know the disciples' name. We're just not told. We don't know both their genders. We know that Cleopas it means son of a renowned father. So Cleopas is a male. But the other disciple, we have no idea. We assume that it's another brother or a friend who's walking the road, but some have guessed maybe it's a husband and wife that are walking this road. What we do know is these are two disciples. We don't even know their names. We don't know their genders. We, we don't know where they're from. We don't know what their occupations were. We don't know how they met Jesus. We don't know how long they've walked with Jesus. There's a ton about them that we don't know. But here's what we do know. Here's what Luke gives us a good, long look at. Luke tells us their condition as they walk the road. Luke gives us a good, long look at their emotional state and their spiritual state and their condition as they start walking down the road. For example, if you look at the story, we know a number of things about their condition. We know, for one, that they're religious. In verse 21, they talk about how we had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. They had read the scriptures. They had known that the hope of their people was a coming Messiah. And so they were familiar with all of that. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus is going to talk to them. And he's going to assume that they've read the scriptures before. They've read Moses and the prophets. It's just that they've missed Jesus in all of it. 
And so they're religious. They get laws, they get morality, they get commandments, they get Messiah, but they don't get Jesus. They're religious. We're also told that their state, their condition, is that they're sad. Verse 17 is told us that when Jesus comes up to them and asks them, what are you talking about? Remember last week we said they were walking the road and all of a sudden they just stood still looking sad. Jesus' question seems so absurd to them, they couldn't believe that someone didn't know what had happened over the weekend, that they're just devastated, disappointed. They stood still looking sad. We're also told in the text that they're sort of blind. In verse 15, Jesus walks alongside them, and yet it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then in verse 31, their eyes are open to him. And so there's this problem with their eyes that Jesus is right next to them, but they do not see. We're even told that their hopes, their dreams are sort of dashed. Remember last week we said, not only was the one they were following put to death, he was put to death in the worst possible way. In their laws was a law that if someone was killed hanging on a tree, it meant that that person was cursed by God. So here they were, they were following him, they had given their life to him, they were hoping he was the one from God, and yet he dies the death that shows that he's actually cursed by God. And so they're devastated and disappointed, and their dreams are dashed. We could keep going, but if I asked you to describe the condition of these two men, their spiritual state, you'd use words like blind and unbelieving and disappointed and devastated and sad and broken and sinful. And I guess what I want you to see is that when you pan out in the scriptures and move beyond Luke 24, you find those same descriptions to describe us as well. Right, The biblical assessment of these two men fits not just these two disciples, but all of us. If you describe our condition as we start down the road, as we walk this journey of faith, these same words would be used of the scriptures to describe us. That we too would rightly be described as blind and broken and unbelieving and sad and sinful. That the testimony of the scriptures, if you widen the lens, if you consider the breadth of the scriptures from beginning to end, you find that same description, that same condition describes all of us. You need to hear that. All of us. I'm not talking about the folks out there who don't come to church. I'm saying all of us. These words, these descriptions would be used to describe us. So tonight what I want to do is just briefly consider how the Bible views our condition. What's the biblical assessment of our conditions as we start down this journey? Now, there's a number of ways you could do this. This book is 66 books long, and it has much to speak of it. So here's how I want us to do it tonight. I want us to consider just three metaphors, three images that the Bible uses to describe our condition. Three physical ailments that speak to deeper spiritual truths and realities about us. Three metaphors, three images that speak to our true condition. By no means will this be exhaustive or comprehensive. We won't say everything that can be said. We just want to get a sense, a feel, a flavor for how the Bible sees our condition as we start walking down the road. So here's one. One of the ways that the Bible describes our condition is that we are blind. 
We're blind. It's a physical reality, and yet it spiritually points to a deeper truth for us. This is our condition as we start down the road, is that we are blind. Like the two men in the story, Jesus could be right next to us. The truth of God all around us. God in his presence next to us, and yet we're completely blind to all of it. Completely in the dark. Totally unaware of spiritual things. And again, I need you to hear this for you. This is not just for the person out there. This is your condition. Because unless you consider your condition, you will not grow in appreciation or gratitude for what Jesus has done in you. Because you start off on the journey blind. Completely blind. You could read the scriptures from cover to cover, and yet its truth and its beauty and its goodness bounce off your eyes. None of it sinks. None of it means anything to you. The, the witness of the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, is that our condition is we are blind to God's truth. Let me read you this verse from Deuteronomy 29. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses has gathered the Israelites, the people of God, before him. He's walked them out of Egypt into freedom, except instead of trusting God, they disobey and grumble against God. Listen to what Moses says before the people. And Moses summoned all Israel... And said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, what he did to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, these signs and great wonders. Listen to verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You hear that? But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Moses is saying, listen, you saw everything God did. You saw it with your eyes. You saw ten plagues light up Egypt. You saw the sea split. You saw your feet walk through land where it should have been a watery grave. You saw manna fall from heaven. You saw it fill your mouth and satisfy your stomach. You saw water from the rock, but you saw none of it. Because the Lord did not give you eyes to see. Though you saw, you didn't see. And though you heard, you didn't hear. And, and though you perceived all of it, you understood none of it. That our condition is that we could see all about God and yet see none of it. Completely blind to who He is and to His truths. And when you get to the New Testament, it's no different. In Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and his disciples ask, why is it that no one understands your parables? Why do you tell these stories that nobody gets? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 13. These people you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their eyes, ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Jesus says these parables have this effect. Instead of opening their eyes, it just further blinds them and further deafens them and further dulls them so that they don't see. Ever seeing, never perceiving. Ever hearing, but never hearing. Ever understanding, but never understanding. The biblical condition that we fall under, and, and we won't go into this much more because Jeremy in a few weeks is going to help us understand and preach through it. 
But, but one of the conditions, one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe our condition is that when we come to God, when we come to his truth, when we come to Jesus, we're completely blind. We're in the dark. The testimony of the scriptures is not that our eyesight is weak and that we just need better glasses to see better. It's that we are completely blind to him. And apart from God getting supernaturally involved, you will never see. You will read the scriptures, you will be around Christians, people will tell you about Jesus, and you'll never see lest God opens your eyes. That spiritually, our condition is that we're much like the man born blind in John 9, who stands by the side of the road, blind, unable to see Jesus as he passes him by. One of the metaphors that the scriptures use for our condition is blind. But that's not it, because it's still worse. Because a second metaphor that the Bible uses is that our problem is not just one with our spiritual eyes, but that our problem extends to our whole body and being. Listen to these verses from Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. A second metaphor that the Bible uses, and Christians from centuries have recognized that it's a physical reality that points to a deeper spiritual condition, is that of leprosy. The Bible describes our condition as not just a problem with our eyes, but one that affects our whole body and being, like a leper, like one afflicted with leprosy. That this is our condition as we come to God. Christians have rightly seen throughout the scriptures that this is another picture, an image, a metaphor of how we start on this journey. In the Old Testament, God had given all kinds of laws to his people about how to handle leprosy and lepers. And part of these laws were just for the well-being of the community, just for hygiene, but part of it was to point to our condition. Because you see, if you were a leper, it meant a certain number of things. It meant that you basically died a thousand deaths before your body died. It meant that you died towards the temple. The temple, today, we believe that the Holy Spirit is everywhere, and so we can worship God anywhere. But in that day, all of worship was tied into the temple. The temple is where you went for the presence of God. The temple is where you went to offer your sacrifices and pray your prayers. Everything was connected to the temple. But a leper couldn't go and approach the temple. In a sense, he was cut off from the presence of God. But not just the temple, he was also cut off from the community. He had to live outside the camp, away from everyone else. And to sort of symbolize what reality was happening here, God gave this law that they had to actually tear their clothes and let their hair hang loose. They couldn't groom themselves and their sores would be evident for all. Leprosy is the disease that sores begin to show up on your skin until it lays waste to your whole body. And then you had to shout, unclean, unclean, for everyone to hear and see. I mean, you, you can sense the shame 
that fills a man who's afflicted with leprosy. Cut off from God, cut off from people, outside the camp, torn clothes, hair grown long, leprosy afflicting his whole body, and then he has to scream, unclean, unclean. And Christians have rightly said, what a fitting picture of our condition. That when we approach God, it's the same thing. That in our sin, we are alienated, removed from God, removed from one another, and also feel a deep sense of shame. Right? When the fall happens in Genesis 3, when sin first enters the world, what happens? You have these three things happening there also. One, you have this man and woman who had enjoyed relationship with God, now hiding from God. Right? They were once walking in the garden with God, now they're hiding from Him. They're alienated from God. But they're also, right after sin happens, alienated with each other. One moment, Adam is singing love poems to his wife. The next moment, he's saying, that woman that you gave me, she did it. Right? And immediately, there's friction between the two. Alienation between man and God, alienation between man and man. And then what's the other thing that they do? They immediately sense their nakedness. And for the first time, they've got to clothe themselves to hide from each other and hide from God. There's a deep sense of shame. You see, here's what sin does. Sin not only makes you guilty before God, but it also makes you ashamed and fills you with a sense of shame. Isn't it the same for us? Like if I asked you this question, think about it for a second. If I asked you, what's the one thing about you you don't want anyone else to know? Let that hit for a second. What's the one thing about you? What's that one thing you would never want another soul to know? If you're honest, you begin to feel it. You begin to feel what the leper had to scream with his lips. You feel your heart screaming, unclean unclean. That's why leprosy is such a fitting picture of sin, because I feel it. Because your heart begins to scream what your soul already knows, that you too are unclean. Ashamed before God. Ashamed before man. Alienated from Him. Alienated from one another with a deep sense of shame and uncleanness. And so the scripture's testimony is the problem is not just with your eyes, it's your whole body. And just like you're like the man born blind in John 9, we're also like the man in Mark chapter 1, the leper standing by the side of the road, unclean, as Jesus passes him by. I'll give you one more. Because it's still worse than what we would think. Because the problem is not just with our eyes and it's not just with our whole body, it's much deeper still. Let me read you three verses from Ephesians chapter 2. A third metaphor to describe our condition. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, there's a bunch we could mine and unpack from that text. I just want you to hear again the first four words, because it's your condition and mine. Again, not for the person out there, 
but you need to see your soul this way. The scripture's testimony of your condition is, and you were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. That your spiritual condition is not just blindness, it's not just uncleanness, it's deadness towards God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead towards God. That spiritually you were a corpse. That you didn't make a single motion towards God. You didn't cry out for God. You didn't long for God so that He might come to you. You were dead. Unable to think a single thing, thought towards God. Unable to move towards God. Unable to cry for God. You were dead spiritually. With nothing in your heart that beated for God. A dead person makes no motion. A dead person makes no words. A dead person is just dead. And so is your spiritual condition before God. Not an ounce of spiritual life or vitality. You lay motionless before God. And you find yourself in need. Right? You find yourself in need of sight. You find yourself in need to be cleansed. You, need your, you find yourself in need of being resurrected. The, the metaphor is not that you're weak needing to be strengthened or needing to be resuscitated. It's that you're dead needing to be resurrected. That you needed an alien outside power to come and call you to life because you would have never summoned yourself to life. You need to consider the impossibility of your salvation. Because what we would want to do is say to the blind man, go and see. But he can't. Or we want to say to the leper, go and clean yourself. But is there enough soaps or detergents to wash away his uncleanness? And we want to motion or call out to the dead, but, but they're dead. This is our condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In, in this way, we're much like Lazarus in John 11, lying in the grave, four days dead, as Jesus passes by. We could talk through lots more metaphors. We've just really scratched the surface of three. You could spend the rest of this week just thinking through the other metaphors that describe your condition. We haven't talked, for instance, about being in darkness, needing light. We haven't talked, for instance, about being enslaved, needing freedom, or being naked, needing to be clothed, or being lost, needing to be found. We've just considered three. That your condition and mine as we start down the seven-mile road is that we are blind, needing new eyes and sight. That we are unclean, needing to be cleansed. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, needing to be resurrected. This is not the condition of them out there. This is how you and I come. Impossible to save ourselves. Impossible to give light to our eyes. Impossible to clean ourselves. Impossible to raise ourselves up. But there is good, glorious news. There is gospel. And that is that in his incredible grace and mercy, Jesus does not leave us in our state, but comes to us where we are. Do you know what Jesus does in John 9? Jesus comes to the man who's sitting, born blind, by the side, and Jesus actually says, 
While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he reaches and touches the eyes of this man born blind, and for the first time he begins to see. And this is the gospel. I would have never seen the truth of this book. I would have read it from cover to cover and all its beauty and all its goodness and all of its truth would have bounced off my eyes. None of it would have made sense to me. Except that he opened my eyes so that this becomes the most marvelous truth of my life. Do you know what Jesus does in Mark 1? He comes to the leper who's standing unclean by the side of the road. And this man cries out to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Mark 1 says, And Jesus, moved with compassion, reached and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. I mean, you just think of even the way that Jesus heals him. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has healed people with just the thought of his mind. A man will be in another place and he thinks it and he's healed. Or in other places he'll speak a word and the person will be healed. But to this untouchable man who could never be touched, Jesus heals him by touching him and saying, I am willing, be clean. To the ashamed man who had to live outside the camp, who could never come in touch with a person, Jesus touches him. To the man whose shame was evident for all to see, Jesus restores him and says, I am willing. And at that moment, he was clean, his shame gone. And now he who was ashamed is put in a place of honor. And you know what Jesus does in John chapter 11? He walks by the grave of Lazarus, now four days dead. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And though he die, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And to that grave he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And John 11 says, the man who had died came out, still bound up in linen cloths. And Jesus said to the other men, unbind him and let him go. Jesus raises this man from the dead. Jesus gives life to this man who couldn't summon his own life and he resurrects him from the dead. And that is what has happened to every heart that believes. It's not that you were such a good person that God chose to save you. It's not that you cried out and God visited you. It's that for no reason you don't understand why he came to my grave. Right? If, if Lazarus was out in the city in Bethany afterwards talking, you know what his story to the people would be? There's a thousand graves in Israel. I have no idea why he came to mind, but he did. And he said, come out, and I came out, and now I'm alive. The story of every Christian is, I have no idea why he visited my grave, but he saw me in my spiritual deadness, and he said, come alive. And this heart that was dead towards God now beats with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Because God alone can do that. The, the story of the scriptures is that you come to the road with great need. But the good news of the scriptures is that as you come to that road with great need, you meet a great Savior. A Savior who is able to give sight to the blind and cleanse the unclean and bring to life those who are dead. So that even you who are here today, if today you would stop trusting in yourself, and turn in faith to Jesus. 
If you would stop trying to bring about sight or make yourself clean or make yourself live, if you would rather see the impossibility of your condition, then what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because God could open your eyes and make you clean and make you come alive. If all that's true, it would impact the kind of community we're going to be, right? If all that's true, if that seeps into the DNA of our church, it'll shape the kind of church we're going to be. We've got three big words we talk about all the time here. We, we talk about gospel, mission, community. That's everything about us. That's our identity. If this is true, if we come to the road in great need, then it shapes all of that. It makes the gospel central for us, right? The gospel is not something in the past. Every day we come and remember, I was blind, but he made me see. And I was dead, and he made me alive. And I was unclean, and he cleansed me. And the gospel becomes central among us. And the gospel is everything we've talked about for the last 30 minutes. And the gospel is our hope, and the gospel is our joy. And we center everything around the good news of the great Savior who visits us in our need. Gospel. But it also begins to shape the kind of community we're going to be, right? For another week, we find ourselves saying, if all this is true, it means that this needs to become a very humble community. What are we going to boast about? What are we going to brag about? Are we going to point to our neighbors and say, you're blind? When we stand leprous and dead, we have no boast. We have humility. And if we really believe this, let me say this too. It might, for the first time in some of your lives, free you to be real, to be authentic, to be transparent, to be vulnerable, to not have to put on a religious game and show, to not have to put on this pious pretense like you've got it all figured out when we all know what you are, blind and unclean and dead, so that for the first time you might take the risk of just being seen and known as you are, with your weaknesses, because we are weak too. So that for the first time, this doesn't need to be a community where we keep up shows until the whole house falls apart and now it's too late. But rather all the while we confess our need to one another and we walk together. One of the tragic things that happens in Christian churches is we all play these religious games and nothing ever comes out until it's too late, and then it blows up in some huge scandal. Nobody ever hears you're struggling with lust. We only find out after you've committed an affair. No one ever struggles with greed. We only find out when you've stolen money. But what if this was a place where we could be needy with one another and walk with one another, not in judgment, but in great humility, walking the road together, pointing one another to our great Savior? It would shape the kind of community we're going to be. Like you could be in soul care and you could very easily keep people at an arm's length. Or for the first time, you might let someone in and be known and know someone else and walk together. And if this is all true, I think it points us again to mission. No guilt trips, no rallies to mission. I'm just saying if this is all true, then we have good news to tell and who knows, maybe we'll tell it. Let's pray.